This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. This is a paper from the Journal of Psychopharmacology, published on November 11th, 2020. It's uh, Ari Brower and Robin Lester Carhart-Harris. It's called Pivotal Mental States. Um, and I think we should we should probably just talk a little bit of like how we got here because it's not gonna, it's not kratom related, but we just thought yeah. it was cool. And you know, overall, my reaction at first was holy holy shit, this is way more philosophical and like st- um, structural, theoretical than what I thought would be in the Journal of uh, Psychopharmacology. I don't I didn't mind that. I just wasn't expecting it. Yeah, yeah, I I found it pretty. I mean, I printed it out and realized it was a 20 page paper but i found mm-hmm. it pretty easy to read with my non-science background so it was kind of uh narrative in a sense so right. I, yeah i think a lot of people could you know should read it because it's pretty it's pretty concisely written it'd be easy for the layman to read if you're not um if you're not if you don't have a psychopharmacology background yeah, you're right. There's only, you know, the only mention of sort of receptors and signaling is uh, the serotonin, um, the serotonin subtype receptors, so either uh, two or one or one A. Uh, but th- that's about as technical as it got in terms of the, you know, the neuroscience of it. Um, but, you know, I think it also is applicable to the audience in a broader way in that um, really what they're trying to discern between or sort of figure out if they can guide uh, people into this sort of elevated stress state where um, they're able to like integrate and uh, learn or see things in a new way such that their behavior changes afterwards. Um, and that's sort of, you know, that that's my like uh, paraphrased definition of the pivotal mental state. Um, my favorite one was the one that they used on uh, page eight. Um, this paper presents an extension uh, to work how, to highlight how chronic stress primes the serotonin system for the elicitation of a um, pivotal mental state, um, a hyperplastic state in which prior assumptions are relaxed, enabling enhanced sensitivity to potential new information consistent with rapid and deep learning. Um, and then they, you know, the, the whole paper sort of just tracks that trajectory from the cellular receptors up through the psychology and even the social structures that they're related uh, to. You know, people listeners can think of a pivotal mental state as uh, stress leads to it. And then it's kind of like, uh, I guess like a spiritual term would be epiphany. But they point out throughout the paper that it's not necessarily a positive, uh, leads to positive results. It could be be a uh, state of uh, stress like if you were in solitary confinement and then you had a psychotic episode. Um, but also it might be uh, sort of an epiphany type of uh, uh, mental state that leads to uh, insights and uh, whatnot. And then they talk about how uh, psychedelics might be able to create this without um, the type of stressors that... And they talk about various stressors that might create this mental state, like uh, sleep deprivation, starvation. They even said uh, forced swimming. The, mm-hmm. the one which I, I was just looking at that 
now before uh, before we started, and I was like, I gotta read into that one. Cause, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess like uh, you know, somebody downs a ship and uh, says you gotta swim the rest of the way in a war <laughs> situation. I don't know. That would yeah, certainly create a pivotal mental state or some kind of mental state. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's good that you brought up that it's not neither positive nor negative. Essentially, it's yeah. a um, a period in which you seem to have elevated cortical plasticity, so the ability to make new connections, uh, uh, enhanced rate of associative learning, and then the elevated capacity to mediate psychological transformations. And so the the way that they frame this was kind of interesting to me, in that they're saying that this is probably an evolutionary adapt adaptation in order to sort of lead to rapid changes before something just goes completely awry. Um, and so I think it's almost easier because they use the psychedelics and they use religion or spirituality as a way to discuss sort of a positive movement. That's an outcome. But then I think the sort of more clear example is PTSD. And so you think about you're in a, you're in a heightened situation in which, uh, there's a lot of emotional value tied and, and associated with whatever you are seeing. And because of that, it's an imprinted, it's a stronger memory. And so they say it can go both ways um, and there's no real way to control it unless you you know, have all of the context included and there's a lot of background work, which is eventually where they're, they're trying to go. Um, but for them, I think it was more about um, not the outcomes of it, but just trying to get to that state uh, and then supporting sort of more supportive um, contexts and environments that can take advantage of that mental state and use it for good rather than using it for bad. It says uh, a consistent root state can mediate strongly divergent outcomes such as spiritual or religious epiphany or conversion versus epiphany or conversion versus the acquisition of a psychotic delusion. In this paper, we use a recent definition of stress as the body's multi-system response to any challenge that overwhelms or is judged likely to overwhelm selected homeostatic response mechanisms. And and so they discuss different uh, stressors. Uh, and it says if a PIMS is not expected and the experience is protracted, then the net effect of this is likely to be distressing. Um, mm -hmm. Versus mm -hmm. if you're a monk and you... Uh, fast on purpose or you know you sleep deprive yourself on purpose versus uh you know being uh placed in solitary confinement against your will uh right. you know right. the, the on purpose religious type of stuff is likely to lead to a better outcome than forced stressors they talk about cognitive stress social stress and physiological stress and how this all relates to uh, the 5-HT2-AR, which is a serotonin receptor. They're, they're trying to construct a valuable framework in which to understand behavior or consciousness, if you will. And it starts out uh, citing a 1977 paper um, that uh, was basically calling for a biopsychosocial approach to medicine. And this kind of relates to your... Um your uh, undergrad thesis is that right yeah so my yeah in undergrad um i uh i made my, i designed my own bachelor of science degree and it was called social neuroscience and anyway the point being just like this biopsychosocial approach to to illness or um diagnosing any other ailments or abnormalities in, in humans is that those things are all intrinsically related and connected 
there, there's no distinction between them. Um, but if you look at the academic disciplines, there are distinctions between them. And so it leads to this disconnection, uh, a lot, especially of the social sciences and the natural sciences. But the, the point being is that they're making a plea to modern medicine to essentially say uh, the biophysiological mechanics of the human body um, are not the only or the primary sometimes cause of any illnesses or abnormalities. And in fact, um, the influence of your environment and the context and your culture, your socioeconomic status, isolation, all of those things actually do have a direct effect on the physiological systems in your body. And so rather than you know, diagnosing someone with depression based on a concentration of you know, proteins in their blood or the lack or presence of a certain genetic component, you would pull out and say, you, you go from a more holistic perspective. And, you know, really, mm -hmm. um, this call has been out there for a while. Uh, the biopsychosocial approach to medicine, they said it in 1977 paper. Um, and, and the pivotal mental states as well as a framework in which we can hopefully understand the causality of, of these, these things. Um, because essentially... You know, I don't, I'm interested to get your opinion on this, but do you think it has changed at all? Do you think in the U.S. we actually do consider the psychosocial uh, components of uh, of health and wellness, or is, is it primarily just you know the it's just medicine, just biology? It seems like. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like it depends who you talk to, because I think you do, and I think a lot of the other guys I uh, interviewed for this podcast do. Um, but it seems like maybe uh, along lines of psychiatry and stuff, they don't consider it. And I, I mean, it makes sense because it's not like we have a predetermined outcome with, you know, the genetics we're born with. It, you might be born with a something that makes you more likely to become an alcoholic, but you might not necessarily be an alcoholic unless you have, uh, you know, trauma or these different stressors that they were talking about but there's you know people out there that'll say well drugs are will cause the addiction and not uh, other things or or you know cannabis will make you become paranoid rather than if you're already an anxious person maybe sometimes it'll make you more anxious or just examples like yeah that. yeah the uh what you've learned to associate with it has been uh, what you're supposed to be paranoid about, not that it actually causes the paranoia. And then what yeah. you said about addiction too, especially related to, to opiates and opiate use, uh, it's essentially saying, yeah, the person is weak rather than looking at the drug specifically um, or just looking at the drug specifically um, or and completely for like avoiding the fact that this person is completely isolated. They're not making very good money. They faced a lot of childhood adversary, you know, uh, all of those things contribute. And so really with the, with the pivotal mental states, and I think the, the, the narrative that they were following in this paper was essentially trying to figure out how much influence to put on these various aspects and put them in a model where they're all considered at once, uh, not by separate doctors at separate times, separate appointments for different reasons to sort of bring them all together. Um, and only when we have them together, we can sort of start teasing apart what's being contributed from genetics, if anything, what's being contributed from biology, if anything, what's being contributed from uh, their social environment and what's being contributed from the, the cultural scene as well. Um, and so, you know, I think 
the reason why I was so attracted to social neuroscience and the conversations I would have is like, you know, it doesn't, okay, so the 5-HTA receptor is important. Serotonin signaling is certainly important, but it's not the only thing. And SSRI is not a magic bullet, like just adding more oil to a car that's going to mm-hmm. get rid of, uh, you know, these, these um, states of distress or mental, mental illnesses. Um, and so, you know, I, I, think, I think for that alone um, is what I was, one of the reasons why I was so attracted to this is that the notion of increasing cortical plasticity to elevate associative learning and then lead to psychological transformation if the stars are aligned and the context and the set and the setting and all of that is in the right place, um, people really have these profound moments where their, their life is forever changed after that. Yeah, and when they talk about elevated cortical plasticity, what what does that mean? So the cerebral cortex uh, is the the it's a thin outer layer um, on the outside of your brain. Uh, the the cerebral cortex, and it, it within that like thin bark layer around your brain, there are several layers within that as well. Humans have the most sort of complex, interconnected, and active. um, cortical neurons or cortical signaling networks of any animal. Um, And so really, if you're, you know, if you look at a mouse brain, like they have two layers and then you get up to higher up the the, um, evolutionary tree, more layers are added on. And so if you're looking for the seat of consciousness or where that exists, it's in the cortex. Um, When there's damage to the cortex, people have like personality changes or they forget how to they can look at an elephant, but can't tell you what the, the name of it actually is. So they can mistake, you know, a car for, um, uh, uh, you know, a boat or something like that, just because yeah. their sort of associations have been lost. And so what I like to think about is the cortex is essentially when you have like information come in from your eyeballs, it goes through your optic nerves. It hits the back of your occipital lobe at the first processing area you know, black and white are differentiated or straight lines versus diagonal lines, like very rudimentary elements of the scene that you're looking at. Where are the boundaries between the things in here? And it gets passed up to the secondary processing areas. That's where things like color and sort of rudimentary meeting and association between these two things happen. And then it gets to the tertiary cortex, the most and highest level. And at that point, we don't really know like specifically what's happening uh, like we do in the lower levels, but it's essentially you know, the experience of seeing something coming in your eyes and seeing something in front of you is because that the signals from that are hitting your brain and sort of dissipating across the entire surface as they move through the cortex. Um, And so plasticity refers to the ability of the cortical networks to change, add or remove connections. Um, When you're born, you actually start out with like, you know, exponentially more connections than human adults. And over time they get pruned and that's Mm -hmm. essentially representative of you learning. And so uh, increasing plasticity allows you to sort of break set, you know, train track paths that are always firing in your cortex, make new connections between things, divergent connections between things. Um, And then once the plasticity mechanisms have started moving forward, it, it strengthens that connection. So a new connection is formed. And it really, you know, it's probably several thousand new connections that are formed. Uh, and then they're strengthened uh, by repeatedly sort of those, path, those pathways firing. 
I was just reading um, Gabor Mate's uh, book about addiction called The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and he was talking about that, how it becomes pruned, so babies that are have stressed mothers and are in stressful environments, the, the pruning happens in such a way that they kind of leads to behaviors that sort of lead to addiction. We have very clear evidence at the genetic, molecular, and signaling levels that um, lack of maternal attention in mammals leads to changes in especially serotonin signaling um, but, and signaling networks. And so I would say the only, the only modification I would say is it's more likely that there's down regulation of, let's say, serotonin receptors rather than a like pruning is, is naturally something that occurs. It would happen anyway. Yeah, and yeah. just because where like, let's, let's say, for example, there, the idea of a car is like somewhere in your head and you could just point to it. The way the cortex is, is that where it's, where I store the information of what a car is and where you store the information for what a car is, are not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, once we get up to those tertiary levels, things are, things are changing. And, and if you change the inputs, so they've done studies where they essentially, um, Rather than sending visual information through the optic nerve, they'll reroute the, the uh, nerves from the ears to that place. And that part of the brain develops into what would essentially be where the ears were pointing to normally, right? So it's all, you're sort of built with a blank slate, and then you start like sort of building out the inside of uh, all of those signaling networks. And so with this model, and, and what I was, what I'm, I'm trying to lay out here is that cortical plasticity is one thing, that's sort of a signaling system level thing. The molecular, uh, the molecular um, changes that we've observed have been down regulations of serotonin receptors, um, which then can lead to, you know, downstream differences in the signaling and the signaling strength. This, this paper spent a lot of time talking, you know, molecular system, psychology, then social and behavioral. They were very much like um, making it clear that it was an integrative multi-level model that they're trying to put out. And I'll, I'll just read a quote about they we play special focus on the serotonin system and its 2a receptor 5h2 ht2ar subtype in particular which has been shown to be particularly implicated in biology times environment interactions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's kind of relates to what we're talking about i think doesn't it yeah so okay. um they say that in these pivotal mental states, uh, it doesn't necessarily, it's not about the outcome. It's not if it goes good and turns into an epiphany that leads you to stop smoking cigarettes. Um, yeah. or it doesn't matter if it goes bad and re- you know, results in PTSD. The point being is that it's the same mechanism and the same set of uh, multi-level you know, influences um, no matter what. And, and the, the linchpin of that is the serotonin receptors where um, serotonin is a particularly difficult neurotransmitter system to study, especially in humans when it comes to consciousness and cortical signaling networks, because there are so many, so many different receptor subtypes. Um, and these receptor subtypes, sometimes when they're activated, they'll lead to say, uh, less signaling. And sometimes when they're activated, they'll lead to more signaling. And so, uh, it's been difficult to really understand how that you know, which way the, the tracks are going to get switched to. Um, but what it seems to be, and, and this is why they use the psychedelics as the example, um, is that sort of getting, getting those receptors activated gets you to sort of like a baseline sort of ready position, then being in the right context in the right environment with the right information or presented in the right way 
that sort of determines which way it'll go and how effective it could be at either, you know, in a therapeutic setting, basically. When we give people psychedelics, they bind to this serotonin receptor in particular, and people are very susceptible to um, thinking about things in a new way or thinking about things in a way that they don't bring a bunch of baggage to the table before thinking about it, which is how we normally, you know, go about our day and our, and our life. We sort of have to do it that way. But when you, when you take psychedelics, what's reported is essentially this loss of ego, um, as well as the, um, sort of pre pre assumptions that you have or, um, uh, patterns or habits that you have when you approach things. And so you can sort of just start looking at things from the bottom up without any influence of yourself and, and just sort of feel, um, you know, very connected to a much larger thing. Uh, that, that is an example of reaching a pivotal mental state and then walking away with it being like, I, you know, I'm going to change X with my life. I'm going to tell my wife mm -hmm. I love her more, you know, it, that, that's sort of the, because psychedelics so reliably induce that type of sort of insight. Um, and it's, it's, a, and it's, you know, it's really hard to, uh, actually describe it's always been hard to describe in writing it, it, it sort of when you when you felt it when you've been there if you know you know um, yeah. but but the fact that the psychedelics both psilocybin and DMT and LSD which all uh, hit this receptor and and this receptor's activation by them is critical to, to actually feeling the effects of it um, then there must be something about um, there must be something that our brain can do to get to that without the psychedelics. Um, but, but that's, that's why the psychedelics are even part of this, this, uh, paper is that we give them the drugs and almost every time someone has this sort of, uh, change in their feelings between themselves and the, the surrounding world that they're in, or they, you know, they think about something in a different light and, uh, let's say I was addicted to opiates for the last 10 years and maybe you're, you know, coming down on yourself because of that. You could just realize that there's there's no reason to be coming down on yourself for that. You're stronger because of it. You should you should feel strengthened by it. And then you walk away and you integrate that into your new sort of default mode network. And then that that was the that was what occurred at the at the pivotal pivotal mental state. Psychedelic therapy is is interesting to me because I mean I I mean between the time I was 18 and like 25 I did it acid over like 50 times and it was just kind of like a gamble if it was going to be a nice experience or not well most mm -hmm. of them were fun but uh you know the the first time i did it actually was like and the guy was like he, he gave me two hits and then he put the rest into some orange juice and i didn't know it was in there and like <laughs> i just started drinking the orange the juice yeah, and uh, it was not pleasant after about 10 hours, you know, and that was the first time I did it. But the idea of uh, uh, set and setting and therapy, I think, is a really good idea because I I think as long as – I just tell people that haven't done it before, but, I mean, just don't have anything to do for the rest of the day and preferably be the next – preferably the next day because then you'll get too caught up in thinking about that when you should just be following – whatever your brain tells you to do, listen to music, sit around, laugh, <laughs> take a walk in the woods. Yeah, yeah I can't stop laughing. But beyond yeah. that too, like, yes, it's, it's good to reserve that next day, especially just sort of to like, to get back to what, it, you know, is quote unquote reality uh, and normal yeah. life. But 
to just integrate and think about what you saw, you, you know, the, the physical effects may be over within 12 hours. But um, the other thing you need to have is a home base and you need to be around people who uh, you know and you're friends with. And preferably, if it's your first time, you're around somebody who's done it before. Um, yeah. So they can, so they can then help, uh, they can help you should, should that be needed. I agree with you hundred percent in that, um, moving psychedelics into a therapeutic context, uh, rather than what would just be a recreational sort of, let's take it to have fun context. Yeah. I think will certainly diminish the risk of people having what they would consider unpleasant trips. Um, mm. I think that, I think that, I think that bad trips sort of get, a a bad rap, I guess, yeah. because of popular culture. Um, you know, me personally, never, never anything that I would consider bad. I don't, I don't even think I, you know, but I've been with people who, who were not cool with, um, you know, sort of losing touch for a little bit. Uh, we got them, you know, we got them back, but, it, and it does happen. I just think the likelihood of that happening at, you know, Coachella versus at your psychiatrist's office is certainly different. In a therapeutic setting, you're going to get a yeah. known dose of a known compound. You know, that's that's the other sort of yeah. wild card. And that's what happened to me. Was it was the first time I had no idea what to expect. I smoked weed, a few, you know, for a couple of years. You know, the weed wasn't even that good back then, <laughs> and uh, it was fun for a while. And then I got afraid that and the friends i was with were kind of friends we'd been to a couple of concerts together and stuff but they you know i couldn't like trust them yet you yeah. know it was kind yeah, of like there uh i was like full anxiety i mean still am a little bit but not as much <laughs> yeah and yeah, uh yeah. it was just it it, it and it, it was I, I knew that at the time I kind of knew what happened I'm like I went in over my head Not and then uh, and then I just decided to do it myself the next time I had one hit I took a walk in the woods I and it was fun I had a, I had a good time and uh, and the rest of the times were were all fine and most of them were instructive and and or mm -hmm. just fun just giggling at my friends the whole time but but yeah like a therapeutic setting would just be interesting because they're going to ask you questions about, I mean, you might have an intention, like, uh, you know, you I do have, have to... an intention. That's the biggest thing. You go yeah. into it with an intention that's different from, I'm going to get fucked up and have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to get fucked up and you're probably going to have a good time, but yeah. you're going to be in the doctor's office. So everything's all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to trust that doctor though. I mean, be like, Oh man, I want to take a walk. Before LSD was outlawed in the 1960s, I mean, even cannabis too. I mean, they were using it in therapeutic settings and and um, trying to help people uh, out of depression, and it seemed to have been working before you know the whole before it got outlawed and the whole uh, drug war kicked in. MDMA was um, actually being used in like couples therapy and and there and psychiatric uh, settings. Um, and, and showing great promise and results, you know, and we're getting close to that too. There's, there's MDMA studies, clinical trials getting pushed through that are, I think wrap up in 2021. So we're getting back there. Um, but with the psychedelics, I mean, with LSD in particular, the studies that you're talking about are used in the therapeutic setting. Like really, to my knowledge was really more about like, uh, whatever the CIA was doing and like trying to understand if it was mind control or this, that, or the other, like what, 
what is even happening to these people is yeah. what we were trying to figure out back then. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Ellis, it depends. It would depend what your goals are and what your intention is. But like, I don't think you need to go through a 12 hour sort of uh, rocket fuel to the moon to, to use it in a therapeutic setting. You can do a smaller micro dose, or maybe you're, you're looking to break patterns of thought that are related to creativity and sort of productivity and business and, and, and that. Um, not necessarily trying to change a habit of yours or the relationship uh, of you to the memory of your parents in your childhood. Mm. Um, I think that could be done with, with psilocybin and MDMA. Yeah. Um, and, and there's other ones you could do that just don't, you know, it doesn't involve uh, 24 to 48 hours of, of you know, uh, <laughs> reassessing your life. But then yeah. again, you know, I mean, Ibogaine and Ayahuasca, they're, they're a few hours, but it's not 12 hours. It's not as long as LSD. Yeah, I would think mushrooms would be the good one to start with because right. you, you, you feel relatively normal if, about five hours later. A little different, but it's not like uh, it's not an all-day thing. You could you could still go to church on Sunday, I think, if you wanted to, if you did it on Saturday night. <laughs> you haven't given up on that completely and gone elsewhere. <laughs> that would be an interesting thing to do to see if like super religious people remain – religion maybe it deepens their faith and yeah it, hard to say and, and it is interesting i mean th they they compare the psychedelics to to mystical or spiritual experiences all throughout this paper as yeah. as the counter example to to the pizza if we look at all of the psychedelic drugs lsd psilocybin ibogaine pcp mdma like uh, tryptamine aniline the phenylalanines um of all them DMT seems to continually, uh, DMT and ayahuasca seem to, you know, uniquely or specifically lead people to believe in a higher power or think that they've, they've touched or seen, you know, even yeah. if they're atheists going into it, those two in particular, people come out of it, you know, feeling, oh, there's something out there that's taking care of all of us. It's good to go. Um, so, you know, why that happens with, with those two and not with LSD as, as frequently is, is an interesting question. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, you think about, it makes me think about how we sort of, um, frame, uh, the utility of religion and religious communities, um, within the sort of human evolutionary history, which is, you know, just to put it in perspective, you know, all of the religions that are the three major four, all the major religions in the world today are generally only about 2000 years old. Um, but religion sort of served a universal purpose of always sort of being like a supportive community um, mm -hmm. that you feel connected to and that you feel validated by and that gives you a outlet um, and a support group to sort yeah. of share how things are going and someone to lean on. Right. Yeah. Um, and what the paper, the authors of this paper, I think would suggest is that, um, the whole, the, the fact that religion or religious like spiritual mystical, um, aspects of human society seem to be there from the very beginning and, and still there today, um, is because that the behavior of doing, of having that community is actually inducing Pivotal, pivotal mental states in the individuals and allowing them to um, have good, like positive wellness outcomes out from it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
and it even talks about religious practice and and I mean prayer. You know, no matter how you do it, it's it's sort of like med meditation. We have a lot of studies about how meditation helps, and I've meditated before, and I totally understand it. And but even you know, saying your uh, rosary is kind of the same type of thing. It's really just calming your brain down, and um, and yeah. uh, you know, giving you an outlet to. Um express your concerns and your worries and your wishes out loud um, yeah uh, in, a, in a positive sort of light like you're not you're not looking at it in a negative way you're going into it with the intent of asking for something that you need or thanking someone um, for being grateful for what you have yeah um, you know if if we did those same things every time we went up to the chalkboard to do math Math would, math would be the same. It would essentially give you the same uh, ability to transform your sort of psychology there. If, if the behaviors were the same, it doesn't, it's not unique to religion, re religion. It's unique to the behaviors that come along with the community. They, they describe us as being in a modern secular environment. Um, and, you know, basically the idea of a secular psychology or um, a, a psychology that isn't based in religious tenets uh, yeah. or religious teachings. And they're saying that as we've moved further away from that, um, we now sort of lack the, the unified vision, integrated support and shared values that were once much more widespread. Yeah. And so they bring this up and, and they, they are characterizing it in a way that essentially says, these, this, this contextual or constructural framework to understanding human behavior and human thought patterns, uh, pivot, pivotal mental states, um, is if we get this right, we can essentially go ahead then and create humanistic context to be supportive of positive transformation. And, and rather than um, sort of you know, only dealing with the negative or the stuff that, you know, like a, a PTSD inducing type event, uh, a psychological crisis, right? So rather than have just a immediate suppressive intervention is what they say for these emergencies. So like you have a psychological crisis, maybe you attempted suicide, that's a crisis, you immediately go sort of get treated in an intervention way. Um, but when you go there, are they going through the motions of what they think is right to just, you know, get through the hoops and hurdles, or are they actually providing a uh, environment and a context and even uh, medicine or therapeutics to help you get to a place where you can approach it in a positive way and reframe your thinking about it, that situation in a way that doesn't lead to sort of debilitating stress or um, anxiety. You know, when someone dies, there's a funeral ritual and uh, it's kind of like after I was out of the Catholic Church, uh, my sister died, and I was like, but this is a good ritual to do, kind of um, to help everybody get through an emotional state. Acknowledging the grieving and just going through it. I mean, yeah. I think the Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion has it best there, where it's like a couple days. It's like a week where everybody is together. And it, it, yeah. If you're doing math, it doesn't matter. If you're doing math all together to, to sort of be there for each other, then the positive outcomes will will happen. Um, but you know, think about think about you know losing a parent or something, and then you know being stuck in Antarctica with no one there, um, and like you know uh, 
a two mile hike just to get your water every day, right? That's, you lose your mom on top of all of that. You can, you could, your outcomes could dramatically change. Um, yeah. So yeah, certainly there's a, there's a lot of things to learn and to acknowledge and to, to borrow or, or um, keep going from, uh, from, from these, the, the religions that are out there now. But, you know, the, I, I recently came across that statistic about how, you know, um, I think, I don't think Islamic is part of Christianity. Those are the two major religions, but they're only 2000 years old. Humans are 4.5 million years old. Yeah. Um, yet we, you know, we put, give so much heed to what we think are like these conservative, stable, steadfast, um, important social institutions. And, I, and I'm not saying that they're not any of that, yeah. um, but you know they're relatively new and they've only been around for like less than you know not even not even five percent of of the of our time here on on the planet yeah that's a that's a that's good to uh remember and the way our uh, societies are structured where there's powerful people and there's even slavery is so new compared to we were pretty much egalitarian for i i mean i think for you know 90 something percent of our existence that's why the biopsychosocial approach is so important and it's why there's it's such a shame that we are still i think more or less western medicine is based on interventions and therapeutics rather than treating the holistic you know person as they are one of the reasons that motivated me to do the social neuroscience to, to understand like um you know, take sociology or history of economic theory or p political systems, stuff like that, um, is because I think it's very clear that, like, if you were to have grown up, we all can can very readily admit that if you were born in 2020 um, versus, like, 1920, who you are as a person is, is pretty different just yeah. because of the different times. Mm -hmm. Where you're born, of course, is a huge predictor of um, you know, sort of what's ahead of you and the opportunities that you have. Um, but also I would say the language you use. So, you know, a, a symbolic language versus an alphanumeric language, or, you know, a romantic language versus um, a, like a Sanskrit. The, that fundamentally sort of changes how you think and, and what your internal dialogue is mm -hmm. um, and the ways that you can express yourself. Um, but also I'd say, the economic system that you're underneath, the political system that you're underneath, all these things um, clearly are the context in which most of our um, time and behavior is occupied to have a have an effect on the physiology of of our being. And so, what you were pointing out with like agriculture being new and this these major civilizations that were no longer nomadic because we have agriculture now. That that is an enormous change in what we were used to sort of tribal smaller groups on the move, working together, not necessarily sort of um, hoarding as many resources, no matter what it yeah. is as possible. So, you know, and, and not, not sharing that in a way somewhere with the community. Um, and there's no way that our brain could our, the, the social and the cultural for like influences or environment that we live on is now changing much faster than our brain can adapt to in a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But when you have these, this cortical plasticity and the ability for these mental states to be reached where you can fundamentally change 
you know, a, a core tenant or assumption of, of your, your mode of thought, um, that would be the only thing that sort of allows us to survive or function in such a massive sociological change or environmental change. Um, if that makes sense, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Humans are, are very well adapted for change. And yeah. all of that has to do with cortical plasticity, the way that we associate and learn things, and then how we um, spin that into the narrative of who we are and what we stand for. Um, and there are very little, you know, you, you don't necessarily, you don't see those traits in, in the animal kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how squirrels would deal with it if they suddenly all had phones or something. Or like they they wanted they had to go vegan or something like you know the, no more nuts like what what squirrels like what dude that's my life nuts are my life for sure um, but yeah it, they don't have the cortical plasticity and the and the ability to rapidly sort of uh, integrate information uh, and make a a, a life changing decision about it yeah you know it's interesting too I was looking up a quote from Steve Jobs I think Steve Jobs said um, LSD and having a child were the the two biggest events or like life-changing events in his life the first time he did lsd and then and then having his daughter i think it, may, it might not have been his daughter too he might have said getting married um yeah. but there are there are very few things where universally people will talk about sort of a life-changing experience um and it can be without psychedelics in a sort of religious mystical setting um, but when you add psychedelics to the mix, you sort of seem more likely to reach that state. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it, it's interesting. I think it, it's interesting to me because a lot of times in uh, the community or the people that ask us questions, they want to know like, well, what about the other receptors? What about serotonin receptors or dopamine receptors? And how does metragenine um, and the other creative alkaloids, how, how does it affect those other things? And we're just now sort of able to untangle how specific psychedelics and hallucinogenics are modulating this complex serotonergic system. Um, we're only once we understand that, will we be able to sort of then take that uh, those interactions and those multi-level influences and apply them to different things but we're getting there and we're just getting there now because especially because you know psychedelics were were banned from research for so long and it's yeah it's difficult to get the old you know i probably said this on the podcast right we can delete it if not but it's difficult to get uh grant money from the national institutes of drug abuse to say i want to i want to give lsd to humans so i can unlock the secrets of human consciousness yeah <laughs> you have said uh, that before, but it's worth repeating. Definitely. It is. It is. <laughs> I had to take this class that was called how the Irish became white. And <laughs> it was a bunch of sociological theories and it was sort of, it sort of opened my eyes to the idea that, Oh yeah. You know, if you want to understand people looking at uh, x-rays or MRIs of their brain is not, not the only way to do that. It's that it's only half the picture. Um, was that a class or is that a book? Oh, I think it's a class. Maybe it was oh, marginalized. Okay. Marginalized Americans was a class, actually. Yeah. Okay. That was the first. That was the first book we read. Um, oh, but then cool. I got her. I got to read that because <laughs> I think about this <laughs> kind of thing all the time. <laughs> it is. It's a good one. Uh, I could recommend all sorts of good ones uh, to you on that. There's um. There's a book called The Geography of Thought that um 
talks about different, different results in sort of basic uh, psychology and um, neuroscience experiments between Westerners and Easterners. Like um, by and large, Western individuals will look at a fish tank and then when asked to describe what they saw in the fish tank, will sort of say, well, um, it was one, one big yellow fish and everybody seemed to be following or, or listening to the big yellow fish. He seems to be the king of the king of the castle here. There were like three other smaller ones off to the side. They didn't really seem to be doing much. Um, and there was a, a bubble, you know, a treasure chest bubble in there. Same exact experiment. Uh, Eastern uh, mindsets or Eastern individuals generally describe the entire tank in that, you know, it was a blue tank that had several plants um, and other rocks features um, and the fish sort of as a whole, not, they don't go for the individual. They're looking at the whole. Um, mm. And so that's the geography of thought is, yeah. is a book that sort of explores that idea. And that, and that's where social neuroscience came from was sort of uh, there was a, there was a professor at the university of Chicago who was studying loneliness um, and the, the, strongest predictor of whether or not uh, someone's going to die, doesn't matter what the cause is, um, but it's sort of dying of old age, is that they lost their spouse. As soon as your spouse dies, your your chances of dying like within that year sort of skyrocket. Yeah. Um, and so it was a very clear example of how the external social and cultural world that you live in affects your physiology and loneliness, this sort of like social construct actually manifests itself within your body. Um, and I think all of this sort of just goes back to cortical plasticity. I mean, we are who we are because essentially we have these like experiential sort of, um, traces that run across our brain and sort of just diffuse across everywhere and hold those experiences in your cognitive state long enough that you can not only like react to things coming at you, but you can stop and think about several things in your head at the same time to put things together to sort of solve a problem. Um, other, other species, you know, are problem solvers and can do this, uh, but we're the only ones that sort of also come with uh, buildings of books and, and records and videos of, of other human experience that gets passed down. So we not only yeah. get genetic information, we also get that social information. And yeah. if our brain didn't have the plasticity, the ability to sort of um, hold and sort of like wash those experiences over, over your cortex, um, you know, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be human species wouldn't be what it is. And, because we have such a dense and crazy cortical plasticity, we have top-down control. Not a lot of animals can um, think themselves into cancer. Or um, there's a book called "Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers." Um, you know, we can <laughs> stress ourselves into uh, physiological illnesses yeah. um, because we have top-down control. The flip side of that is, well, because we can do that and affect things negatively. We can also affect things positively. And that's what it, this pivotal mental state saying that with this cortical plasticity that is very well demonstrated with psychedelics, um, we can change the context and the environment to change the associations between your sort of feelings and representations of things. And that can lead to profound uh, psychological transformations in you know who you are and, and how you behave. It's cause for optimism because uh, I think uh, you know we need some 
positive pivotal mental states <laughs> in uh, our country <laughs> or in the world sure. right now. I mean, yeah. individually, you know, this kind of thing is studied more and more. I th- it gets out there. It's only going to be uh, uh, positive and uh, maybe move uh, the human race up a lev- level. <laughs> and uh, you have control of it. You know, you yeah. the way that you react to things that happen to you in the world, because shit's going to happen. That's just what, you know, sort of going through life is. Yeah, those yeah. stressors, those things that sort of try to take you away from homeostasis are going to happen. But if you know that you can control your reaction to them in a way that would be better for you in the long run, um, it's just important to, to know that information and, and know that you have that power. Uh, to change, you know, to change your fundamentally your relationship to the world and yourself uh, and others. Um, but it all sort of starts with, uh, you know, positive mental attitude, which I think is, is the mantra in, uh, uh, you know, sort of rehab and physical therapy is, you know, positive mental attitude can really get you through at the end of the day. Awesome. Uh, the one other thing I just want to note real quick yeah. is that when we talk about the number of connections in the human cerebral cortex, we're talking about a hundred trillion connections. And to my knowledge, there is nothing, it's the most complex uh, and intricate and detailed uh, like network connection thing that we have ever found anywhere. I mean, it's not, it's unsurpassed. I think we have more, you know, more connections than we do sort of uh, galaxies in the sky. Um, So, you know, that, why I got into neuroscience is sort of the remaining big questions, you know, what about space? What about the oceans? And what about the brain? Um, so it's, it's cool that um, psychedelics are now getting introduced in a uh, academic and sort of a scholarly way in order to probe the, how those connections make you who you are. Um, and it wouldn't be possible really without the psychedelics. I hope you enjoyed that topic as much as Dr. Cachet and I did. You can find Dr. Jonathan Cachet on at J Cachet on Twitter and at ccbresearch.com. Follow us at Kratom Science on Twitter, kratomscience.com. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moonrunner. Written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for kratomscience.com. Take care.